Uh, give it for Rachel. Fantastic, fantastic. All right, let me try this out. Um, I think sex is kind of like COVID. Okay, so, you know, um, some of you've had it, some of you haven't had it, some of you wish you had it, you know. Some of you had it, you didn't know you had it. Some of you gave it to somebody else. Some of you had really bad experiences with it. Some of you had pretty good experiences with it. Some of you, uh, you, had, you were asymptomatic. Uh, when it comes to protection, some of you have protection, some of you don't have protection. Um, some of you are going to get protection, and then, and then some of you think protection is just a great big conspiracy. <laughs> Sex is a whole lot like COVID in a room like this and with an audience like that. A whole lot of you are like having all kinds of experiences with it now and the past. And All right. Uh, so anyway, so I, I know what I'm dealing with here today. Uh, I want to assure you, though, that sex is a very important topic for a church to address because our sexual formation is a big part of our spiritual formation. Um, God designed sex. He created sex. He's the author of sex. And so it's important we talk about it because we're being shaped by society all the time, right? And so we need to give God you know, equal airtime when it comes to shaping our thinking and our practices of, of sex. So I'm doing a talk today. I'm doing another talk with singles only uh, this Thursday night at our young adult ministry, The Brook. And uh, to kind of set this up a little bit, I did want to say this. It's okay to laugh at sex. Last week, I said some things and be like, can I laugh at that? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. God made sex. And when Adam and Eve like, did it, he was like, oh my gosh, I didn't, I didn't plan that. How, how'd they figure that out? And he knows that sex is kind of funny. Like people make funny noises and funny faces and stuff. Point being, it's okay to laugh at sex today. Uh, but we are going to talk to the great sex therapist himself, God. And we're going to ask him to help us better understand what he had in mind when he created sex and how to have better sex in the, in the context of marriage. Um, there is this book in the Bible called The Song of Solomon or The Song of Songs. Song of Songs means like the greatest song ever. It's like the greatest hit among the Israelites. Um, Song of Solomon refers to the fact it's about Solomon. A little background on Solomon. He was the third king of Israel, the last king of the United Kingdom. Uh, he, he reigned during the uh, 10th century BC. He was known for his wisdom. He, he became king at the age of 20. His father was David, his mother was Bathsheba, and he knew he was way over his head when he became king. When David died, he asked God, please give me wisdom. I need lots of wisdom. God gave him wisdom. He also gave him wealth, and, and he gave him fame. And he was also famous for having a lot of wives. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Many scholars believe he was the original inventor of Viagra. Okay. It's okay. It's okay. I told you it's Okay. Uh, now, seriously, I, a lot of these wives and concubines had nothing to do with like a romantic relationship or sex. Um, if you were a wise king, you would sometimes marry the, the daughter of a king of another tribe or another nation. Because think about it, if you, their, their, their daughter is in your country, you're probably not going to invade them and crush them. And so it was, he, he lived during a, a season of great peace in the history of Israel. One of the reasons was because he formed all these alliances. But he probably did know a few things about sex. And so there is this poem called The Son of Solomon in the middle of the scripture, in the wisdom literature, because it's about how to become wiser when it comes to marriage and sex, that we're going to read some from today, okay? And it's this poetic interchange between Solomon and this woman who's known as the Shulamite woman. Shulamites were, were dark-skinned. They were of African descent. And so this is just one of his many marriages, but it's this beautiful poetic interchange. And in the book, I have 10 sex secrets of Solomon, we're going to just hit three today for the sake of time, all right? So sex secret number one, keep the fire in the fire pit. I'm a pastor. I have to start with this one, keep the fire in the fire pit. So we got a fire pit outside. We like fire pits, right, this time of year. We're going camping. We like, you know, s'mores, hot dogs. You sit around the fire and, you know, this primal stuff happens and you start telling stories. 
Anybody love a fire in a fire pit? Yeah, fire in a fire pit, good thing. But fire outside of a fire pit is not such a great thing, right? We know all about that all too well in Colorado. Get a fire in the fire pit, you can, it's very destructive, it can burn down forest. So we're to learn from Solomon's wife is sex is for the context of marriage. Marriage is like the fire pit that sex has to stay within to keep it safe and to keep it secure and to keep it lovely and wonderful and uh, to create the kind of experience that God wants us to have with it. So Song of Solomon, chapter two, verse seven, this is the Shulamite woman, Solomon's wife speaking. And, and it's important to realize this. She's speaking not just to Solomon in this poem. She's also speaking to her community, to her friends, which are a proxy for all of Israel. You know, sex isn't just a private thing that happens between two people. Sex always has a context. Friends, family, society. What happens in the bedroom doesn't just stay in the bedroom. It impacts and ripples all kinds of relationships. So realizing this, the community is holding them accountable, but they're also teaching the community what they're learning about sex. And she says, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. What she's saying is the, the romantic, erotic part of love, sex, do not arouse it until you're ready to arouse it, which is in the context of marriage, which is what she and Solomon are talking about here. In other words, don't light that match until you're ready for the fire to burn. Um, Hebrews chapter 13, verse four says, marriage to be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. So the author of Hebrews is saying, if you wanna honor God, you need to honor marriage. And if you're gonna honor marriage, you need to honor the marriage bed, which is the place for sex to happen. And if we don't do this, God will judge us. What does that mean? Well, when, when parents are disciplining kids, they've made a judgment, like that's not good, that's not good for you, that's not good for others. And so sometimes parents will directly discipline their kids, and other times they go, well, I'm just gonna let you experience the consequences. You wanna eat tons of sugar? See how that works for you here in about an hour, okay? And that's what God does with us. So often when he's judging us, disciplining us, he just lets the consequences do the work. And hopefully we learn from the pain of the consequences and, and we correct ourselves and we get in alignment with his moral law. So I wanna talk about two consequences of having sex outside of marriage. Um, the first one is it leads to really bad decisions. So Chris had talked to a, a woman recently and she, uh, Chris has known her for a long time and her marriage is not doing well. Like they're actually... One of those COVID marriages where it just got worse and worse, and now they're thinking about getting a divorce. And this woman was like replaying what happened, what led to this, this place in their marriage. And she said, you know, one of the mistakes I think we made is back when we were dating, we just got sexually active. And we didn't work on other forms of intimacy. And I just made a bad decision. I just got clouded because, you know, when you have sex with somebody, it's meant to bond you with that person oxytocin, dopamine, all kinds of endorphins get released. And when you get that bond, it's hard to break that bond. But also, sex turns your body on and your brain off. Can I hear an amen from somebody? Okay. Amen. amen. Right? Right? And so if you're an employer and you're hiring an employee, you don't do the interview process when you're drunk. Right? Well, when you're, when you're dating somebody, you don't want to be drunk. Like, and sex makes you kind of drunk on all these chemicals and stuff. You need your whole brain. And God designed it for you such that he put sex in the fire pit so that you would have a whole brain in making the second most important decision of your life. The first one, which will be, you know, who's your God? And the second one, who's going to be your mate? And you want to have a brain when you do that. So this woman was saying, basically, I, I lost my mind and I made a bad decision. I didn't do my homework and I got too connected too soon. Uh, a second reason why to keep the fire in the fire pit is there's this natural consequence that takes place inside of us when we have sex outside of marriage. And that is we grieve the Holy Spirit. 
We grew the Holy Spirit. And maybe you had sex with your spouse before you got married, six out of Sunday marriage. You got great sex and had a great marriage. But, but this is something that none of us gets away with. When we have sex outside of marriage, we always grieve the Holy Spirit. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 19, flee from sexual immorality. Don't fight it, flee from it, just run from it. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? So Paul is, he's speaking to Corinth, Greece, a very immoral town. Sexual immorality was as rampant then as, as it is today. And he's saying, you need to take this really seriously because you're a temple. So in the scriptures, the, the, the imagery of the temple is used in many ways, actually four ways. One is the temple of Solomon, who we're reading about today. He created this huge, beautiful temple. It was destroyed by, uh, what was it, the Babylonians or the Assyrians? I think it was the Babylonians. And then it was rebuilt by Herod, and it was destroyed by, by the Romans in 70 AD. And then the next temple that is referred to in the New Testament is the church. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about the temple is the church. Not the building, but the people. Like when we get together physically like this, something happens. Am I right? And speaking to those of you online, glad you're tuning in. And that's great. We're going to always have online content for you. But there's something that happens when we physically get together. The Bible says the Spirit is present among us. He dwells in our presence. And when we worship Him like we just worshiped Him, the scriptures say God inhabits the praises of his people. That's why it's important that as we feel comfortable, we start coming back together again because we're the temple of God. I got an amen from somebody. Thank you. All right. And then the, the last way that the idea of the temple is used is of our bodies. And that's what Paul's doing here in 1 Corinthians 6. He's, he's saying our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. When we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we receive his grace and his forgiveness. When he covers over our shame, because of what he did for us on the cross. And we, we surrender our lives to him. We turn from being God to worshiping the one true God who's made himself known to us through Christ. In that moment, the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, begins to dwell inside of us. And in that moment, we become a temple of the Holy Spirit. So I'm speaking experientially when I say that I've experienced what Paul's talking about. When I've sinned sexually in the past and I've been in tune with the spirit and I've been abiding and walking with him, I sense grief inside of me. Some of you know what I'm talking about. There's this, this feeling of, ah. Oh. The Spirit says, ah. Oh. I mean, we can all you know, empathize with that feeling of grief. You have a loss when he dies, or you, you, you mess up and you grieve what you've done, and you, you grieve that. Well, those experiences, that sense of, ah. Oh. That's the Holy Spirit also inside of you, feeling that with you. You've grieved the very presence of God that dwells within you, the temple of God. And God does not want this for us. So he, uh, he asks us to keep the fire in the fire pit, to keep sex within the context of marriage. So it, it brings up an important question that I think is asked by people who are coming to faith and growing in faith. How will I know if I'm dating somebody if we are sexually compatible? Is that a fair question? Okay, how do you know? Oh, okay. So I've preached this stuff for over 30 years. My last church was 90% single for a long time. When I left, it was like 75% single still. So every year we do the sex messages. And I was downtown, you know, so it was a very important topic. And, and because, again, it's part of our spiritual formation. And then I got divorced and I was single for a few years. And I go, oh, crap, I have to live this stuff. <laughs> I, it's easy to preach this stuff. It's really hard to live this stuff, right? And then I fell in love with somebody. And, you know, when you fall in love with somebody, you want to be intimate in every way. 
But by God's grace, we did not have intercourse until we got married. By God's grace, okay? But we did work on were the other forms of intimacy. Like we talked about last week, the rope. We talked intellectual, emotional, spiritual, physical, but not sexual, missional intimacy. We worked really hard on those things. And then as we moved towards the married day, we, we graduated sexually a little bit towards intercourse, which is probably TMI, but anyway. Okay? And people ask, well, how do you know you're going to be like, sexually compatible? And I go, when you've got that other kind of intimacy going on, you just know. You just know when your hearts are that connected, you know this is going to be awesome. And again, without giving too much information, it's been awesome. Okay. All right. <laughs> Moving on. Um, sex secret number two. The first one is keep the fire in the fire pit. It's God's design. It keeps sex wonderful and safe within the context of marriage. Sex secret number two, kill your foxes. If you non-hunters, just work with me here. Um, Sign of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15. Catch for us the foxes. The little foxes that run the vineyards are vineyards that are in bloom. So Solomon's wife, they're, they're talking to their, their community, like, help us catch these foxes, these things that could destroy our sexual relationship and our marriage. Um, how many of you have been in Napa Valley? Okay, a lot of you. You ever see a fox in Napa Valley? Now, they don't advertise this, but they've killed those little suckers. Okay? I used to live like an hour away from Napa Valley, went there on our honeymoon, and you will never see a fox in Napa Valley. Here's why. Foxes destroy vineyards. They will go right down a row of vines and eat all the grapes and destroy the vineyard. And so, again, agrarian society, they're like, we got to kill the foxes because we got this beautiful vineyard we're creating. We want to enjoy it together, and we don't want the foxes destroying our vineyard. So I want to talk about a few foxes. Um, one fox is our past the sexual baggage we have from our past that we haven't worked through. Uh, in, in my first marriage, our honeymoon, we brought a bunch of like suitcases and stuff. Little did I know that would be a metaphor for our whole marriage. We brought all this baggage into this marriage, sexual baggage and other types of mar- baggage that we fought for 26 years and we never could completely overcome it. And so we got divorced. Um, Chris and I, on our honeymoon, we carried one duffel bag about that long. And that was it. We, we like to travel light. We just went to Hawaii and we both had a, like a little uh, backpack. That was it. We, we travel light. But that's been a metaphor for our marriage because Carissa didn't have a lot of baggage and the baggage she had, she worked through it. And I spent years in therapy and years working on workbooks and talking to friends and being discipled and practicing spiritual disciplines, letting God work through all my sexual baggage. Now, no one ever gets completely whole in this life, but you can make great progress. Uh, my first marriage uh, was so difficult. I got a master's degree in biblical counseling after getting another master's degree before that, just to try to figure out what in the world's going on. You know, like, why are we so messed up? And I, I had a couple classes on sexuality, and in one of the classes, we had to write out our sexual history. And I thought, oh, this must be a big deal. I don't have a lot of baggage. But I went through year after year of my life, and I go, oh, wait a minute. There was that time when I was eight, and I had a cousin sexually abuse me. And then there were those times when I, I, saw, I saw pornography. Those times I, I transgressed God's, God's word and his moral laws to my own shame. And then at that point, we'd been married five years, and she'd had three affairs. And each of those affairs, affairs sent a very specific message to me. You are inadequate. And so what I did is, I, in the context of friends and in the presence of the Spirit of God, I would remember those events. I'd ask for forgiveness if I needed to, but I would just grieve those moments with God and let him heal me. we, we got a song coming up on healing. Amen. The Spirit of God wants to heal all of us, Amen. of all of our sexual baggage. He wants us to be whole. 
But if you haven't dealt with your past, deal with it because it's a fox that can ruin your vineyard. Uh, and you can't heal what you can't remember. Okay, number two, another fox is time and energy. Song of Solomon, chapter two, verses five through six. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head. His right arm embraces me. Okay, so that's a, that last line we talked about last week. It's a metaphor for sexual intercourse. I will not demonstrate, but she's about to have sex with Solomon, and she goes, I need some energy. Solomon, give me some raisins. <laughs> raisins were considered in the 10th century BC an aphrodisiac, okay? Point being, we need energy for sex. Now, for some of you, are like, is that a problem? Yes. When you're married and you have kids, it's, it's a problem. Uh, Chris and I said, we used to have, amen, on the front row. Chris and I joke about, we used to have lots of sex, now we have lots of kids. Funny how that works. And you have lots of kids, you tend to have less sex, and you, know, you have less energy, less time, and you know, you got to get really creative. So you got to manage your energy, take care of your body, and married couples, you have to schedule sex sometimes. I'll tell some fun stories about that at the end of the message, all right? All right? So make sure you have time and energy for sex, because don't, that fox can ruin the vineyard. Uh, number three is emotions. Emotions can be foxes. If you have emotional baggage about sex, if you have emotional baggage towards your spouse, that can be a massive inhibitor to your sex life. Emotional connection always precedes sexual connection. So if you look at all the research on like sex and sex, problem, sex problems, it used to be thought, well, we just got to work on technique and you know, get, educate here about how to have sex better. The research shows the efficacy of just working on sex, sex technique is abysmal at improving a person's sex life. But there's all this research by John Gottman, Sue Johnson, about attachment and about emotional connection that indicates if you have a strong emotional connection, you will have a great sex life. You might have to work through some things, but you'll have a great sex life. So um, this is why it's important to stay emotionally connected. That, this is why when sometimes you're initiating sex with each other in marriage, one person wants to talk about remodeling the house. You laugh, you laugh. But that has to happen. So you're like, wait a minute, I thought we were going to have sex, and now we're talking about remodeling the house. You have to realize what's happening there is there's, there's been a lack of emotional connection, and, and then you've got to get emotionally connected, and then you'll have sex. I'm just speaking hypothetically. <laughs> All right. The takeaway is, when I have great sex, talk about the house. Okay, um, something like that. Uh, last fox we'll talk about right now is, is pornography. So I'm not going to read all the statistics about it. You can do your own research, but if you're not aware of it, like it's, it is a massive, 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 massive problem. It's a problem right here. We, we, it's here, okay? And there's, it, there's new research that indicates that it's becoming a, a significant driver in the divorce rate. And physiologically, it affects us. Mentally, it affects us. Pornography does not lead to a better sex life. Just the opposite. It destroys your sex life. And so we need to deal with this issue. And, and we got to get help, you know? That's why it's important in our simple churches that we confess things together. That's why it's important for us to have accountability and take this seriously. Like a lot of people in our church are using Covenant Eyes. I applaud you. Covenant Eyes is, a, is an app that you can put on all your devices and somebody holds you accountable and every month they get a report. If you've seen anything, they talk to you about it. And take this very, very, very seriously. Now, before I, I, I go on, because I want to end with some fun stuff here, um, some of you may be feeling a lot of shame right now, I'm guessing or some guilt, and maybe even some hopelessness, um, let me remind you that the gospel is the centerpiece of this church, as it should be all churches. Let me remind you that the gospel declares that if you are in Christ, all your sins have been forgiven. 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus went to the cross, not only to take away your guilt and your shame, but to heal you. And if we confess our sins, he promises us he's faithful and righteous and will forgive us our sins and heal us from our unrighteousness. Do not leave here with shame. Confess and be clean and walk out of here and let God make you more whole. Amen? Amen. All right, let's kill those foxes together. Don't do it alone. All right, sex secret number three, have fun, but in the context of marriage. Okay, again, sex is supposed to be fun. Now, before I get into this passage, which is the rated R portion of the message, if it hasn't already been rated R, uh, let me remind you, all scripture is inspired by God. It says in 2 Timothy 3.16, meaning God has breathed into it. God has a purpose for it. God wants to use all scripture to spiritually form us and make us more whole and to help us have more life-giving relationships in marriage and outside of marriage. So just a reminder, here we go. All right, Song of Solomon, chapter one, verses 12 through 13. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breast. So Solomon is at the dinner table and he's watching the draft or something. And, and his wife's got other things on, on her mind and she wants to like change what he's thinking about. So she puts some Chanel on between her breasts and she gets some, I don't know, agent provocateur type lingerie and she goes and sits in his lap and she puts the business into things in his face and he, she changes his mind. And it just keeps getting better and better after that, okay? She's seducing him. Then he responds in kind. Song of Solomon chapter four, verses one through seven, how beautiful you are, my darling. He's like, you are looking good tonight. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Now, as I go through this passage, you have to realize this was written 3,000 years ago. The imagery is a little different than what we'd use today. So the first time we did the Love Hacks series, Love Hacks 1.0, Chris and I were at Brooklyn at a church planning gathering, and uh, we were in our hotel room, and I was working my way, kind of exegeting this passage, and I just looked at her, just kind of thinking I was being kind of corny. I said, hey, babe, your eyes are like doves. And I thought she'd roll said eyes, like, you're such an idiot. And instead, she smiled. I was like, why are you smiling? And she said, you're saying to me that, that my eyes bring you peace. I'm like, dang, Solomon was good, man. That's good, that's good. Okay, babe, your eyes, she's in the back, your eyes, like, they're like doves. Um, your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Now, goats can be white or black. This is a, a woman of African descent, so she likely had wavy hair, like the, the goats coming down the hill, like waves of goats, and he's referring to her, the beauty of her black and wavy hair. Uh, your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, white, white goats this time, uh, white sheep, coming from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Again, 3,000 years ago, they didn't have peroxide and veneers and, you know, dentistry. And so if you had white teeth and you had all your teeth, that was a really big deal. So he's kind of working his way down like, man, you're looking good. You, your teeth are awesome. Um, your, your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. He's referring to the, the, the color of her lips and how beautiful they are. And he's probably starting to kiss those lips. Um, your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. If you open up a pomegranate, you laugh at this, but it worked for him. You wait till you, wait till you see where this ends, okay? So he's like, it's like your cheeks are rosy, like the insides of a pomegranate. You might try that at home, guys. I don't know. Um, your neck is like the Tower of David, built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of a warrior. What's he referring to? You, you know, every culture has the things that it sort of 
almost idolizes in terms of physical characteristics that are considered attractive. Like, you know, it wasn't so long ago if you had a plump body, male or female, that was really attractive. Then the 60s, you're like Twiggy or something. And, and more recently, it's been more like the Greco-Roman, like be really buff. And now it's like, you know, CrossFit buff. Well, it changes all the time, okay? So back in, in the 10th century BC, you gotta remember the Israelites had just come out of Egypt. And in Egypt, long necks on a woman were considered really beautiful. So he's referring to the fact that she has a long neck and she's got necklaces and earrings and stuff on, on her neck. All right, then he, he's working his way down and he goes, your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Now, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. <laughs> I'm like, why in the world is he comparing her breast to like baby deer, you know, like Bambi? And then I remembered, I used to take my kids to petting zoos. Ah, ah, now I get it, now I get it, okay. You gotta think about scripture sometime, meditate on it, all right? Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. Now, I read this in commentaries. This is not just me making this up. Scholars think this is what he's talking about. Her breasts are asymmetrical. One's like a mountain, one's like a hill, okay? What's he doing there? Chances are she doesn't feel so great about that. So he's even complimenting the things that might make her insecure about her body. Is that gold? That's some good stuff, all right? Uh, then, uh, okay, he ends with this. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you, even though he's just pointing one out, or he's just become aware of one, okay? He's just, he's just elaborate, elaborating on how beautiful that she is to him. What's happening here? She's working her way down, and she is being aroused by his words and by his actions. Um, then we skip down to verse 16. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. So she's inviting him to experience her most intimate parts and prepare her for intercourse. And he's like, okay. Chapter one, verse five, I've come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I've drunk my wine and my milk. Are you tracking with me here? Okay. So he's like, sure, I'll do that. And he comes up, you know, and milk mustache. He's like, that was awesome. That was really, really awesome. So, hey, it's, it's what's for dinner. Okay. All right. So. You think this is hard to hear? You try talking about this stuff sometime, okay? All right. This is in the Bible. It's inspired by God. He's, he's saying foreplay matters, but have some fun. Have some fun. And then later, they have intercourse. Left arm, left arm right arm, they have intercourse. You know, in our simple churches, when we read a, a passage, we paraphrase it, we have these seven questions. They're really important. If you're in a simple church, use all seven questions because David Watson developed these seven questions in India. Simple churches around the world, movements of millions of people, they use all seven questions. They're all important because they lead to transformation, accountability, encouragement, and multiplication. But the two questions we ask when we get into a passage is, one, what does this passage say about us? What this passage to me says about us is God made us for sexual satisfaction and fulfillment. What does it say about God? He says that God has made us for joy and union and happiness and deep, deep, deep holistic satisfaction. 
Can I get an amen from somebody? Okay. So I want to talk to married people for a second, and I'm going to end by talking to single people and all of us, right? Married people, have some fun with this. Can we, can we work on our sex lives and make it a priority and have some fun with this? Some of you are like, I can't wait to go home. This is the best message ever. I, I had a friend tell me one time when I was uh, you know, thinking about getting married the first time, he says, you know, sex is important. It's like a thermometer and a thermostat. When you have a great sex life, it, it sets the temperature. It increases the temperature of the overall experience of a marriage. But it also can tell you the temperature of the marriage. If the temperature sexually is low, you probably need to work on all facets of the marriage. Okay? But it's important that we make sex in our marriages a priority, that we have fun, and that we, we, we enjoy ourselves. So a couple of stories from friends of mine recently. Uh, I got some friends. He picked up his wife, took her to lunch, had a, had a suitcase prepared, had planned you know, child care, life-dominating stage, had been busy and stuff. And then when they were driving home, they didn't go home. They went to the airport, and they got away for a weekend in Mexico. And I'm pretty sure they weren't just drinking margaritas, okay? Well played, man. Well played. Well done, well done. Um, I, I got some other friends, and uh, they've been going through just a busy, busy season, business startup, both of them. And kids, you know, again, they go, we got to take this more seriously. We're working on our sex life, got to schedule it. And what they do every once in a while is they just schedule a lunch date for three hours in a hotel. And they get all kinds of apps and stuff and her favorite bottle of wine and roses and stuff, and they, they enjoy each other. Married couples, be creative, have fun, and make sex a priority. Is that not like the best homework assignment you've ever had from a pastor? Okay, okay. Let me talk about all of us. Some of you are like, man, I'm not having sex. Or in my marriage, I'm not having sex. Or I'm very broken sexually. It may be a long time if ever I have sex. How's this message apply to all of us? Married, not married. Those who've had bad experiences, good experiences. Those who are very broken sexually right now, those who are very whole sexually right now, how does this apply to all of us? How many of you remember the first time you ever heard about sex? Whoa, really? Me and you. Okay, and you and you. Guys, golly, write the history. Okay, think back. I bet you remember it. So with me, fourth grade, Danny McDonald. Danny McDonald. So we were kind of buddies, and we were like weeblos and Cub Scouts together. And, and, and Danny... Uh, one day, I don't know how he found out about it, but he found out about sex. He goes, dude, he goes, I got something to tell you. And he, I don't know if he drew things like in the sand or what, but he was like explaining like what goes where. And he says, your mom and dad do this. And I'm like, no way. There is no way my mom and dad do that. No way. He goes, yes way. Because you, you, you wouldn't even be here if they didn't do that. I go, are you telling me that's how babies are made? And he's like, that's exactly how babies are made. I go, well, in that case, they've only done it three times. Me and I got two sisters, Okay. You know, like, like kids trying to understand sex, it's almost impossible, right? C.S. Lewis says you have to use like candy. It's the best you can do. Like kids love candy, right? And you go, it's like candy, but it's way better. And kids are like, there's no way it could be better than candy. No way, no way. And that's the way we are when it comes to heaven and what God has in store for us. We think, man, how could it be any better than sex? And God's like, oh, you just wait. It's gonna be so much better than that. So Jesus uses this metaphor in Revelation. He says that the resurrection of heaven and earth and all people, that those who love God will experience a wedding supper of sorts, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And all people from all nations, we're going to have a feast 
you know, end all feasts and begin a whole new kind of feast in heaven forever and wine. And if there's going to be a wedding supper, though, there's going to be something like a, a wedding night, a consummation. Now, don't let that trip you up. And the scriptures say that there's not going to be sex as we know it in heaven, nor will there be marriage in heaven. There's going to be something that's so, so, so much better. The scripture refers to it as our union with Christ and with each other. And we can't even begin to imagine it right now. Can't even begin to imagine it. But the level of ecstasy and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment and well-being and rest and peace is just going to wash over all those who love God in his presence. Amen, somebody? Yeah. No one's going to say, doggone it, I got ripped off. I want to go back. My sex life should have been better. No, no, we're not going to go there. Now, Jesus, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, every time he took communion with his his disciples, or when he did do it uh, on the last evening of his life, he broke the bread. He said, it's my body given for you. He poured the wine. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, a covenant of grace and forgiveness poured out for you. And then he said something really interesting. He said, I will not eat of this vine or drink of this vine again until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. You know what Jesus is doing right now? He's waiting. He's waiting for you and for me and for us to experience this amazing union that will be better than anything we've ever experienced. So if you're a follower of Jesus right now, I encourage you to take that cup that's below you, take the little wafer off and uh, prepare yourself to take communion. In fact, you can even begin right now. And if you're in a place where you're like, can I do this? Um, if you believe that Jesus Christ died for you on the cross to forgive your sin and to give you a new life, an eternal life, and if you're willing to repent of being your God and let Jesus be your God and your way of knowing God, then right now participate with us and wait with us for the day when we experience a union and a communion with God beyond anything we can possibly imagine. Let's pray and then we'll worship. Father, thank you so much for this hope. Um, thank you that you made us for joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. And you've, you've designed us for it, our bodies and our souls. And we thank you that in the future, you have something that's awaiting us beyond our ability to conceive. We're like little kids who can't, we can't even begin to grasp it. But it's gonna be so, so good. And Jesus, you've made this possible through your broken body and your bloodshed so that we can be reconciled to God, both now and forevermore. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.